0: Thank you. Church, It is good to be with you. Welcome to our guests who are traveling from out of town. Happy 4th of July. We are so glad that you're worshiping with us this weekend. I hope you got plans for the 4th of July. I love the 4th of July. Huge fan. Uh, my favorite thing about where we live now is we can sit in our driveway and watch the John City fireworks, so I love that. So that's where I'll be tomorrow night. Maybe you've got plans as well. Uh, listen, I'm going to jump into our message of the fruit of spirit here just a second, but before I do that, I just want to talk for a second about the 4th of July, because I have, I have a growing concern that... Um, that it is becoming harder for some of us to kind of anchor ourselves biblically with how we approach the 4th of July. So I just want to kind of talk about that just for a second. It won't take very long. Um, As I look around at our world, I I see, uh, one of the things I see is this. I see people who, because of their awareness of the problems in the world and problems with our nation. And obviously there are problems in the world and problems with our nation. But their awareness of that has kind of led them to a sort of a, let's burn the place down sort of posture, right? Hopefully metaphorically, mostly metaphorically, right? Uh, sometimes literally that's a problem, but a different problem. Um, and, so, and so if that's kind of the way you're wired up to see the, the weaknesses and problems in our nation, and there are plenty, um, you, you might sort of approach July 4th with a, the a spirit of ha- hostility. Uh, and, and I get it. I get it. Um, because, you know, as long as... This nation has been populated by people and led by people and governed by people. It will have the problems that we people seem to bring to everything. And so I get the, the burden of the placement down mentality that might kind of uh, be the way you approach uh, the 4th of July. Uh, but I just want to suggest to you that the Bible actually doesn't invite us on that path. The Bible invites us to a different path. I think one of the most relevant texts for the 4th of July is Jeremiah 29. Uh, Jeremiah was this prophet, and he writes to the people after they have been taken into exile in Babylon. See, what has happened is Babylon has conquered Judah, destroyed the nation, and kidnapped the people and taken them as exiles to Babylon. You can be sure they were probably not too excited about whatever Babylonian holidays they were forced to celebrate. And this is what Jeremiah writes to them. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He tells them to build houses and have children and get married and raise their family. But then he says this, also... Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the advice he gives to those people who had been kidnapped and forced to live in the capital city of their sworn enemy, the empire of Babylon, that had just destroyed their homes. Even when you don't feel like it, he says, seek the good of the city in which you find yourselves. And the New Testament writers pick up on this idea from Jeremiah 29 and offer this as the way Christians are to think about how we inhabit the nations of this world. Again and again, the New Testament writers pick up on this idea from Jeremiah 29 and say that we are to live like that. We are to live like exiles who seek the good of wherever God has placed us, even while remembering that it isn't our true home. That's whatever nation of the world you find yourself in. Today, today it's the U.S. of A., but maybe you'll move to Germany next week. I don't know. Whatever nation you find yourself in, the New Testament writers teach, seek the good of the place where God has put you while remembering that you are in exile and this world is not your home. Which I think offers offers kind of a dual warning as we approach a holiday like 4th of July. It's a warning to the, the burn the place down crowd, right? I don't like this nation, let's just destroy it. Well, no. God's word says, seek the good of the place to which I have brought you, even when it is the evil empire of Babylon. But it's also a warning for those of us who might be tempted to make the nations of this world too much our home, right? There's a dual warning there, not just a warning against the burn the place down crowd, but a warning against the temptation that I'm probably more tempted to. Because, you know, put on a Bruce Springsteen song and cook me a burger and I'm go USA, right? Like I'm in, I'm all about it, right? And yet the Bible says, no, Ethan, remember you're in exile. I could overly, and maybe some of you all could overly, if you let yourself overly identify with the fate and reality and history and identity of any worldly nation. And this, we see this Jeremiah 29 principle all throughout the New Testament when it teaches people how to live in the world. First uh, Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's the nation you're a part of, God's nation that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. Once you would not received mercy, now you've received mercy. He says, so I urge you as foreigners and exiles, drawing on Jeremiah 29, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He says, I don't want you to fit in completely with the nations of the world, Peter says. I want you to stand out for good because you know that your true nation is a holy nation, a a godly nation, God's kingdom. Um, Paul teaches this very same thing to the Philippian church. Uh, The Philippian church, they were Roman citizens All of Philippi was populated with Roman citizens, which was rare. Most residents of the Roman Empire were not citizens of the empire. They were subjects of the empire, but not the Philippians. They were Roman citizens. How did they become Roman citizens? Because their fathers had fought for the empire. They were citizens by the blood of their parents and grandparents who had fought and died for the glory of Rome. And those Philippians were proud to be Roman citizens. They, like some of us, could have been tempted to find their identity in the things, the nations of this world. And so Paul writes to them in Philippians chapter 3. He says, listen, if anybody thinks they have reason to be confident in the flesh, in the stuff of this world, I got you beat. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That means I'm in the right religion. I'm of the people of Israel. That means I'm from God's favorite nation. Not you Romans. That's not God's favorite nation. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That means I'm, from the, of, God, I'm of, of the right race. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means I'm the right culture in regard to the law of Pharisee. That means I have the right morality and I have the right social status. As for zeal, persecuting the church, that means I have the right passion. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless, that means I have the right purity. Paul says, if anybody ever could be confident in the things of this world, it was me. But... He says, he says all, "All the confidence I would have had in the things of this world, all the identity that I found in the things of this world, he says, it's nothing compared to my identity in Christ." Skipping a bit down to verse 15, he says, "Everybody needs to think this way. If you're mature, if you're mature, this is how you'll think: anchoring your identity not in the things of this world, the nations of this world, the peoples of this world, but anchoring your identity in Christ." He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as often as I've told you before, I'll tell you again with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does it look like to live as an enemy of the cross of Christ? Well, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. They are ruled by their hungers. They're ruled by their desires. Some of you know what that's like, to be ruled by your hunger. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But not us, Paul says, not us. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait a savor from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So so this, this guides the way we think about July 4th. I'll be celebrating burgers, fireworks, the whole thing. I'll be celebrating as an exile whose true citizenship is in heaven, seeking the good of the place that God has put me. This city, this town, this state, this nation, this world. And if we forget that we're exiles... And we get rooted into the place where we are, and we find our identity in that place. Well, Paul says that's what it's like to actually live as an enemy of Christ, to be rooted in your flesh, not rooted in Christ. So, this July 4th, your citizenship is in heaven, you're in exile here, called to seek the good of the place. God put you. And that principle that when we root ourselves in God, we can then do the very thing God called us to, that is the foundation of our whole summer series. We've been talking about what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. But that idea is in a larger section in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is teaching about these two paths. One path is where we anchor our lives in our flesh and in the world. We root our lives in the world. And he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, stuff like that. He says, I want to warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, when you're rooted in the world, when you're rooted in your flesh, when you're rooted in this reality... Well, you're going to grow the fruit of the world, and it's fruit nobody wants. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And what we're learning this summer is that if we want the fruit of God's Spirit, it is not something we can manufacture. It is not something we can produce. It is something God produces that we receive as produce. It grows in our lives when we are rooted, anchored in the Spirit of God. Let's see, we've been working through the fruit, and today we are talking about kindness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And and today I'm going to break from my pattern just a little bit. So far in this series I've mainly, after I've revealed what the day's fruit is, I've mainly just said, and we all know we want this fruit. Like we all know love's important. We all know joy is important. We all know peace is important. And I've kind of moved right past the fruit itself to talk about how do we get it Where do we need to put our roots so that the fruit can grow? But when it comes to kindness, I think I need to switch things up a little bit. Because I have a concern. I have a concern that when I talk about kindness, some of you out there are going to think this is sort of small fruit. Right? It's not the, the main course that we've been like. It's not love or joy. It's that squished up grape at the corner of the fruit tray that clearly nobody's going to eat. We're going to go past it for the strawberries and the raspberries and the, the little fancy slices of cantaloupe. That's what we came for. That grape is going to sit on the tray until it's warm and mushy, and eventually somebody's going to throw it away. It's kindness, you know. I mean, it's not love after all. It's not joy. It's just just kindness. I want to challenge that notion. I want to spend a minute trying to convince you that kindness is big fruit. Kindness is magnificently important fruit. It might be the center of the tray. Kindness is the discipline, the work, the action of engaging with the humanness of another person. At the most basic level. They need a glass of water, you give them a glass of water. They need a place in line, you give them a place in line. They need a seat because they're tired, you give them a seat. They need you to stop yelling at them so they can just collect themselves for a second. You stop yelling at them. They're trying to merge on the highway and you're in a hurry, but you give them a little space anyway so they can slide over and we can all get where we're going kindness is compassion to a waitress even when she gets your order wrong and you are really hungry and you really wanted it to be right but you're kind anyway because you figure she's probably got it worse than you you're sitting there in a restaurant eating a good meal she's busting it trying to pay rent we are kind to someone when we treat them like a human worthy of love. And to engage in kindness, to commit to kindness, is to engage with the humanness of every person you encounter. That every person you encounter is an image bearer of God, beloved by God, is a person Jesus died for, and therefore they're probably also worthy of kindness. Just a little, just a little, little thing. You see, our world works so hard to trick us into turning one another into categories and stereotypes, into cartoons of ourselves. And categories and stereotypes and cartoons, they don't bear the image of God. Jesus didn't die for stereotypes. So if I can turn someone into a stereotype, then they don't deserve my love or forgiveness or affection. And our spiritual enemy wins if we forget that all those other people are just people, just like us. If we can decide that those other people, they're not people, they're liberals or bigots or Republicans or Democrats or they're woke or they're protesters. And and Jesus didn't die for all those made up things I just mentioned. We turn others into something that is other than us, something less than human, something different than human so that they're easy to hate and dismiss. And kindness breaks that, interrupts that, and says, no, I think they're a person. I think they're a human, just like me. I I think they get thirsty. I think they might have woken up on the wrong side of the bed just like I did? I want to suggest that if you cultivate the discipline of kindness, it will force you to acknowledge the humanness of every person you meet. And when you remember that they're human, you might just remember that they are beloved by God and wanted by Jesus and that they're worried about their mortgage and that they're tired and sad and thirsty And kindness both responds to that reality, but also forces us to confront that reality. Here's here's something interesting that I've noticed, just a little observation I've made. When I drive through Johnson City, cutting people off, going through yellow lights a little faster than I should, if I'm doing that while driving through Johnson City, it is only And always, because I am experiencing an emergency of sufficient degree to justify that sort of driving. Every single time I do it. But when other people drive like that through Johnson City, they're jerks. Isn't that fascinating? I've done the research. It's every time. Every time I do it, it's justified. And every time anyone else in the city does it, they're a jerk. It's fascinating. The research bears it out. Kindness interrupts that way of thinking, doesn't it? Kindness is, wait, maybe they're late for a job interview that'll mean the difference between paying the rent or not. I had an encounter with the transformative power of kindness several weeks ago. I had a, a thing I had to take care of with uh, my, uh, my cell phone plan. It was a mistake that the, this mega million dollar company had made. I hadn't made the mistake. They had made the mistake. And it was, but it was costing me money even though it was their mistake. And so I had to get on the phone with customer service to take care of this. And uh, just under two hours into my journey of customer service, I was finishing up with my second customer service agent. We had gone through the same process with both of them. They'd asked me all the same questions. They had tried all the same steps. Neither one had been successful, but they assured me they would be transferring me to the technical service department where they could quickly solve my problem. And I was, I was in it to win it here. I was like, great, sure, let's do that. Transfer me to somebody who can fix this. During that transfer hold, we were just under two hours, but during that transfer hold, the call dropped. You know, hour and 50 minutes in, I have no option that I can see except to start the whole process over. Blindly call the customer service agent, now knowing that I'll be transferred to someone who cannot solve my problem, yet nevertheless, I will have to answer all the questions, explain all the things, give all the information, and they will go through all the steps until they are convinced that they cannot solve my problem, and they in turn will transfer me to the mythical technical service department. As I was on hold, I was preparing my approach. And I decided I'm coming in hot. I've gone through to this with two of them. I'm going to come in strong. I'm going to have all my information. I'm going to talk fast and talk loud. They can decide I'm an angry American if they want. But I'm getting to that technical service department. We are going for a straight line. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And I definitely don't need to make friends. It's just a customer service agent. And then, it was like the Spirit of God interrupted me. As I sat there listening to, you know, the easy listening version of 90s rock songs, the Spirit of God just interrupted and said, Ethan, whoever answers that phone, it is not their fault that you've already been on hold for two hours. Whoever answers that phone, it is not their fault that they won't be able to help you. It's not their fault that they have to make you ask all, answer all the questions again. And it's not their fault that they are professionally obligated to try all of the useless steps that the other two people also tried before they transfer you to the people who can actually help you. I was not excited by this interruption from the Spirit of God because I had my approach planned. And yet, just before I went off hold, I just, I just, in my spirit, I just it's like I made a promise to God. Okay, I'll be kind, and I'm not just kind. I'm gonna be Chick Fil A drive-through kind. You know what I mean? Like, no, it is my pleasure to be on hold for going on. No, no, I mean no. And so I did. So she answers the phone like she's supposed to, and she's reading from her script and. Um, And she says, you know, hello, blah, blah, blah. Do I have the pleasure of speaking to Mr. Magnus? Yes. And tell me, sir, how is your day going? And oh, I wanted to tell her how my day was going, but I didn't. Um, The Spirit of God prompted me to lie, and I said, fine. (laughs) I said my day was going fine. But then I said to her, but why don't you tell me, how is your day going? And to my great surprise, she answered. She said, actually... It's a really hard day. Today was my daughter's second birthday. But I can't be there. Because I had to move to the city to get a job to take care of my family. Because my mom, who's raising my daughter, can't work. And I'd hoped to see her on her second birthday. But but I'm not going to get to see her for another month. And I really miss my mom and my little girl said, the good news is, though, I did get permission to work an extra shift so I could get some overtime, and I'll be able to afford a birthday present for her. I found out later in our conversation that she, I was talking to her, she was in India when I was talking to her, and I did a little basic math. As I was talking to her, it was one in the morning, her time, as she worked her second shift through the night so she could buy a birthday present for the two-year-old daughter she would not see. Uh, In case you're curious, um, I did have to answer all the same questions for the third time. She was unable to help me with my problem, even though she went through all the same steps for the third time. And at the end, she assured me that she would transfer me to the technical service department, who would be able to help me. But before she made that transfer, I asked if I could pray for her little girl. And she said yes, and I prayed, and she sobbed. And then it was 90s music again, and the technical service department did solve my problem. In a little under five minutes, they were really efficient. I was on the phone just over two and a half hours um, to take care of this rather minor problem with my cell phone plan. I'm pretty sure that my kindness cost me twenty minutes. That's my guess—about twenty minutes. But it changed my day completely. I honestly don't know what kind of impact it had on that woman's day. I think it meant a lot to her. I'm never going to talk to her again. What am I going to do? Wander the street? I mean, India is a huge country. I'll never find it. I didn't ask what city she lived in. I don't know where she is. I guess I just keep calling AT and T and hope I get lucky. You know. It changed my day completely. That two and a half hours on the customer service line with AT&T became the highlight of my day. It was definitely, without a doubt, the best thing I did all day long. Kindness transformed that woman from a customer service agent to a person. Customer service agents aren't people, right? We can be as mean as we want to customer service agents. That's just a thing. But if we remember they're people and kindness does that, kindness reminds us that they're human and maybe they're thirsty or they haven't had a break or maybe the last customer yelled at them even worse than you were planning and they're still a little shook by it. Jesus tells a parable about kindness. Kindness. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels are with him. He'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. And they will answer Jesus and say, when did we do that? Like, I'm pretty sure, Jesus, that never happened. Like, we would have remembered if we'd fed you. We would have remembered if you we'd visited you in prison. That would have been something we would have remembered, Jesus. I, I, I think you got the wrong people, Jesus. I don't think we did that. And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he turns to the one on the left and he says, depart from me, you who are cursed. Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And and there was that one time I was tired. You didn't give me a place to lie down. And when I was in prison, none of y'all came to visit me. And again, they're gonna answer, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, cause if it, if we, if we'd known you were thirsty, we definitely, I mean, Jesus, come on, you know us, Jesus, we would have been there. Like if we'd heard you were in prison, we would have visited every day. Like, come on, Jesus. And he says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do that for me. And they'll go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. I don't know how you react to that parable. I've got a couple reactions. The first is to seek the mercy of God, right? For we are dependent on the mercy of God for our salvation. And the second is to recognize that kindness is big fruit. It's not some little afterthought fruit when you run out of all the good fruit. Kindness is like bananas, right? It's the king of fruit kindness matters simple acts of kindness serve jesus directly that's what he says your simple act of kindness serves jesus directly i'll never meet that lady and her two-year-old little girl but it was jesus that i was praying for on the phone and i'll meet him Maybe you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. What is it that made the Good Samaritan the Good Samaritan? He saw a person on the side of the road, not a racial group, not a political category that he could despise and reject. He saw a human being who needed bandages, a glass of wine, and a place to sleep. And he says, well, I've got that. I can provide that. It's the the simplest of acts of kindness. So where does this kindness come from? What are the roots that grow the fruit of kindness? Well, I'm going to tell you about a couple root strategies that don't work. You you might think they would work, but they don't work. Uh, One strategy I see a lot of people root their kindness in the kindness of others, right? Right? They'll say, if they're kind to me, I will be kind in return. And there is a logic to that strategy. It is a deadly logic. It's a destructive logic, but it's, it's, it's logical. It makes sense. But I just want to observe what we all know to be true. We all know to be true is that if our kindness is dependent on the kindness of others, then the world will continue to be a very unkind place. Like it's too late for that logic to work. Like if we were pressing the reset button and we could all start being kind from the very beginning, well, maybe that would work, but it's too late for that. If we're just going to be kind to the people that are kind to us, it's too late because there's already too much unkindness out there. Maybe you could do this logic. Okay, they don't have to have been kind to me, but I'm going to evaluate their character. And we'll say their character is the root of my kindness. By which I mean, if they're a good person, I'll be kind to them. If they're a good waitress or a good customer service agent, I'll definitely be kind to them. But if they're not, we might say this, we might have this logic. My unkindness is a reflection on how bad a person they are. We we give ourselves that argument, don't we? Well, I know I was sort of a jerk to them, but that's only because they were a jerk. My unkindness is a reflection of their poor character. To that argument, I just want to say, no, it's not. No, your unkindness is a reflection of your poor character. And it tells me nothing about their character at all. Same is true for me. My unkindness does not reflect poorly on the people to whom I am unkind. It merely reflects poorly on me. My unkindness does not reveal that they were a bad person. My unkindness reveals that I am a bad person. And I am, which is revealed by my unkindness. So those roots won't work. We can't just be kind to them if they were kind to us. There's not enough kindness to get that thing started. We can't just be kind to them if they're a good person, good at their job, good at their whatever it is, you know. I'll be kind to my mechanic if he fixes my car fast and cheap. No, your unkindness says nothing about the quality of them. It says a lot about the quality of you. So we'll need different roots if we want this fruit to grow. Well, the only roots that work are to root ourselves in the kindness of God. So that the kindness you share is the kindness you have received. For this argument, I could look to about 85 different biblical texts. I'm going to give you two It is real simple and clear. Titus 3.3. 3. Boy, there was this one time when we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures. We lived with malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's us, he says. That's who we were. Pretty despicable people. But into that situation, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Because that is excellent, and profitable for everyone what is the, the the foundation from which paul says devote yourself to doing what is good the foundation is the goodness of god to you when you didn't deserve it that is the rich wellspring out of which your goodness flows Paul's a little simpler argument in Ephesians chapter 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, because in Christ, God forgave you. The supply of kindness that God wants you to distribute to the world is his. It's his kindness. You don't have to come up with it. It's his kindness. That is the root of the fruit of kindness. And our world desperately needs kind people. Here, I, just real quick, I'll do an illustration. Anybody here go to coffee shops? Anybody here gonna be at a coffee shop in the next week? Like you're sure of it? Anybody here go to coffee shops? Anybody? Nobody? None of you are coffee shop people? Over here, you go to coffee shop? You're gonna be, you'll be one this week. Okay, great. All right, here, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. You're going to be kind to someone this week. And I know that because you're going to feel super guilty because it isn't going to be your money. Can you still buy a cup of coffee for $5? Is that, can you? I don't even know. I don't buy coffee. Can you, somebody? Can you buy a cup of coffee for $5? Did you say yes? Okay, great. All right, this is $5. It's my $5, okay? It's going to stay my $5 as long as it's in your hands. It will never start being your money. I'm not giving it to you. It is still my money. And because it's my money, it makes sense that you would spend it the way I ask you to. Which is just this. The next time you're in a coffee shop, buy somebody a cup of coffee on me. Not you. It's not your money. Don't get cocky. It's just $5. That's my money. That's the way kindness works. It's little things like buying people a cup of coffee because it's not your money. Letting somebody merge into a lane because it's not your road. Forgiving somebody a debt they owe you because it's not your forgiveness, it's God's forgiveness. You're just giving them what somebody else gave you. The place you want to live is a place filled with kindness. And kindness is not one great big thing that we do all over once. We just do, let's get the kindness out of the way, you know, get back to the important things. No, kindness is a million little things that make the world worth living in, that demonstrate that we see the humanity in one another. Our world says, nope, they're other than you. They're different than you. They're not the same thing you are. They're a whatever thing they are. And once you turn them into a thing, man, you have, that's license to hate right there. Like you full speed ahead. Kindness says, no, I think I recognize you. Every person you see, every person you talk to, when you're on the computer typing, you know, and you turn them into a a thing, a Facebook commentator, think how mean you can be if if there's no human on the other side of that. Kindness says, I think I recognize you. I'm not not 100% sure, but you look just like Jesus. I think you're Jesus in disguise. And so I'm going to treat you like that. Let me pray for you. God, your kindness to us, we don't even know where to begin. More than we deserve, more than we expect, more than we could have asked or imagined. May we share some small part of that kindness with those around us. May we recognize that every person we meet, every customer service agent, every waitress, every driver on the road who cuts us off in traffic, they are Jesus in disguise. Image bearers of you, not other than us, but like us in need of your love and needing the kindness of one another. May we be bearers of that kindness. This is our prayer. Grow this fruit in us that it may hang on our vines and we may give it out freely. This is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.